Good evening, and welcome to Black Ink Red Film. We are in Season 1, Stephen King, The Early Years, and tonight we're going to be talking about The Shining. I'm your host, Stephen, and with me tonight is... Stephen Payne, and we're going to grab our key to room 237, or 217 if you're a fan of the book, and see if we can't unlock the mysteries of the Overlook Hotel and its legacy. As always on the show, we'll be talking about the novel, and then we will talk about the film adaptation of that novel, and then we will talk a little bit about the major differences between the two and how changes to the film, how they affected the uh, narrative around some of the plot elements or if there was major shifts to the characters. And this book is just ripe with those. So this is a great episode to talk about that. So Stephen, could you give us a summary of the novel? Yeah, um, in essence, the novel, for those of you who don't know it well, are about uh, Jack Torrance, a recovering alcoholic, former uh, kind of disgraced college professor, I guess you can call him, who, uh, hard up for work, agrees to take a job as a caretaker at the mysterious Overlook Hotel, well, mysterious-ish Overlook Hotel over the course of a winter season. He brings his uh, wife, Wendy, with him, and also his young son, Danny. And during the course of this winter season, as isolation starts setting in, as the, the winter starts becoming more harsh, uh, they start to learn more about what really makes this, this grand hotel with its very sketchy history tick. And slowly the hotel starts working on the minds and psyches of these three people, eventually leading to um, some pretty horrific events. So I love this book. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's one of Stephen King's best works. I read it back in the early 80s as a younger man, teenager, and I was not able to pick up on all of the adult themes around the alcoholism, the abuse, the uh, the sense of despair that he's getting from losing his job. All of that hit me so much more uh, profoundly reading it as, a, as an older man. So let's talk about what makes this book amazing. One of the things that I think is done really well is the namesake itself, The Shining. So Danny's character is gifted with its part telepathy. He's able to see the future. He's able to know certain things. He's able to read people's moods. He reads the thoughts of his parents. We learn that he is not alone in this. Halloran, the cook character, is able to describe to him that he is not the only one with his ability. But we learn that Danny is probably one of the most powerful wielders of this telekinesis, mental power, whatever it is. And it's partly because of that that the hotel becomes more powerful with its evil presence. Halloran describes that the hotel has had horrible things have happened in the hotel in the past, but they're usually just images in the past. And we will learn that because Danny's shining is so strong that the, that the Overlook Hotel is actually feeding on it. And I think that the shining as a force is woven through the novel in such a way that it's affecting all of the characters, you know, how they are reacting to Danny's power with this. Yeah, and, and I think this is a familiar theme, or would eventually become a familiar theme through several of King's works where a specific location, particularly a house, or just in the case of Pet Cemetery, a region, a localized region, wields some kind of force that almost, that either A, acts as a beacon for for evil and or evil behavior or just becomes some court some has some way of attracting 
people with profound issues, adult issues, mm-hmm. in many cases, to the location and then really sort of uh, just accelerates whatever issues they're dealing with and, and, and helps just act as a catalyst for, for, turn, for turning whatever their, inter, their inner demons are uh, against them and against others. So it's, it's King's done this, I think, in Salem's Lot. He did it, and The Shining did it, in Pet Cemetery, probably some others I don't even think of off the right. Yeah, top and, that, and that theme that the overlooks an evil territory attracting other evil creatures is, is fully explored in the sequel novel, Dr. Sleep. Mm, okay. So would you say that this novel is more about Danny and The Shining is it more about the Overlook as a character, or is it more about Jack and his descent into possession? That's a very tough question, because the book, and frankly, to some degree, the movie, when we get to it, sort of mess with you in terms of whose perspective we're really supposed to be following. I mean, my initial thought is it's about Jack, the theme of a recovering alcoholic who's not a bad guy. He's done some bad things. He's had demonstrated a short fuse. He's trying to rebuild his life almost against all odds and winds up in this location where he's literally out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, having to, as, as one of his main assignments, is having to tend to the boiler room of the hotel where he's almost literally responsible for taking care of the heart of the beast in this case. And then he starts really getting into the history of the Overlook, becomes obsessed with it, becomes paranoid, and, and his descent into madness, if you will, uh, happens from there. For me, it's really always been about about Jack, but you can very easily make great arguments for Wendy. You can make great arguments for, again, Danny and his power of the shining. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of depth here, and a lot of people, historically with horror, even the great horror novels and, and movies, the arguments can be made. Number one, they typically aren't character driven. And especially in the second half of the 20th century, they're not really based on adults. You know, they're aimed at a younger audience and are simplified. The shining really blows both of those up. It's about very, like you said earlier, I think very, very adult fears that people can easily identify with. And clearly the, the, the horror is pulled from, these adults having adult problems and this location really, really exploiting that. In fact, you can make an argument depending how you read the novel, although there's some you know, explicit indications of some supernatural stuff going on, I guess, that maybe a lot of what happens ultimately was in their own minds, that they were fragile beings to begin with, and something about being isolated, something about the history of this place getting into their minds, maybe the Danny's shining, even starting to... Um, externalize itself in ways that that um they weren't no one was anticipating maybe nothing ever ever was really happening at the overlook maybe this was all about themselves mm-hmm. i mean again there's some specific things that happened but were they in the characters minds were they not did they really see a face in the explosion at the end the, the uh, topiary of the the shrub animals excuse right. my the colloquialism hedge animals, the hedge animals yeah. really come to life so there's a lot about the novel that I, I like in terms of you are left at the end legitimately asking yourself, did some of this stuff really happen or not? Or was this just fragile people just, uh, you know, finally going over the edge? Yeah. I, if, for, for preparing for this podcast, I asked a couple of people, what would you, how would you describe The Shining? What kind of story is it? And most people said, oh, it's about a guy going crazy. Yeah. And reading the novel, and, and that might be true when we talk about the movie a little bit, but 
the novel is not about a guy going crazy so much as it's about a guy becoming possessed by a haunted house. And so usually a haunted house is attacking in, in most haunted house tropes. A haunted house is attacking people that basically keep their personality. Right. This is a situation where the house has really infected Jack. And it's not until the the final passages of the story where Jack has now attacked his family with a roke mallet that he's able to fan that off finally and free himself from that as the Overlook Hotel blows up. But you know what I love about people saying that, of saying, oh, it's about a guy going crazy and chasing his family around in this this hotel, is that if you really look at the story and you look at, and I, I have not read Dr. Sleep, maybe it comes out, maybe it doesn't, but if you think about what the, uh, you know, years down the road, if this was a real story, what the story would have been, that's probably what the story would have been. Hmm. Because they're only ever in the book what four witnesses to anything that happens. Right. Halloran and the three family members. Yeah. So it would be very easy for the tale to later, later be told about the Overlook. Oh, yeah, that's that place where that, that you know, drunken, crazy guy went mad and killed his family, then blew the place up. Mm-hmm. Not really what happened. But one of the powerful things about this, the mythology of the story is that you can see that's what the story would have been in real life years down the road. Exactly. One of the other interesting aspects of the book is how Jack is replicating the behaviors of his father. So he is, uh, and, and he fears that, right? His, his old man was an abuser, abused his mother. There's some very graphic domestic violence in the book. He also uh, is an alcoholic, so he's following in those footsteps. And one of the aspects of the novel that's different, we're gonna, I'm just going to tease this one out a little bit. In the, in the film, Jack is attacking his family with the axe, and there's some famous scenes that we'll talk about. But then the novel, he's actually got that roke mallet, and because he's got that, he's really able to do some damage yeah. to Wendy. Well, and Halloran, too. He that's true. takes his head off with yeah, the thing. That's right. That's absolutely right. So the themes of, and, and that will also come up in Dr. Sleep, the themes of following up in your father's footsteps, the failures, and all that. And uh, and I believe the hotel uses that against him because he's he keeps, the hotel is taunting Jack, you're not management material, are you? And that's part of what he needs to step up and prove that he can, as, as he's becoming possessed, be able to uh, live up to the hotel's expectation, the evil overlooks expectations. And on a similar note, Wendy's character, I mean, again, before we, we're not going to get too deep into the book versus movie thing, the, the Wendy in the novel is considerably different, too. And oh, she's absolutely. battling a similar issue. I, King described her as, I think, a cheerleader who never really had any major challenges in her life until she got here. But reality is that her backstory in the novel is that basically she was never deemed good enough by her mother, I think. I mean, her mother didn't... It was basically domineering always telling this is critical of how she was raising danny and all these other things and so right there's several points in the novel where they they consider leaving but then they would have to go back to her mom and she's like that's not on the table exactly so really when she gets to the overlook and really danny's issues start becoming more profound and of course jack's issues start becoming more profound it's almost like you know all of her mother's um henpecking if you will finally you're kind of getting into her and, and creating horror a certain horror for her exactly right so the let's close up so we can dig into the meat of the movie the overlook does possess jack he has a confrontation with danny and danny basically has a 
a rousing, you're better than this dad sort of speech. They're lying to you. And at that last moment, Jack is able to come to his senses and tells Danny to run as the hotel goes up in flames and Halloran's able to take them out. But even then, even as Halloran's taken him out, Halloran is almost tempted by the evil of the hotel. He wants to pick yeah. up another. So it's another one of these, like the one ring, right? <laughs> Picking it up and casting you into evil. So that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, it, it's, it's very, very interesting. Great stuff. Uh, let's pause here and then we'll talk about the movie. So, Stephen E., where do we even start with the masterpiece that is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Well, I rank it as, on my personal list, as 16th greatest horror film ever made. So it's obviously way up there on the list. Although I do have to admit it's, and, and I'll say this about the book too, I respect both of them but don't necessarily love either of them, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And the thing that I've always found fascinating and remarkable about the movie was is that it may be arguably one of the most polarizing horror films ever made part of it because it carries the baggage of the book into it and and you know as we'll get into is that fans have always been heavily divided on the book versus the movie but like most horror most great horror films you have the exorcist you get jaws rosemary's baby if you ask horror fans about this any of those films, oh yeah, that's the greatest of all time, or that's the fourth or fifth greatest of all time. There's usually, they're not that far apart on these movies. The Shining, you'll ask, you know, someone may have it as their greatest horror film of all time. They may say it's the worst horror film ever of all time, or close to it, or hated. It actually got panned by critics, when it, hmm. many critics, when it first came out. So it's really been a polarizing horror film, because it's... it's. Do you think the film is polarizing just on its own or do you think it's polarizing when compared to the novel well to answer that we kind of have to get into our way back machine and go back to when this film was made so it came out in 1980 which means it was they were starting to shoot it in 70 or well known in kubrick it probably was they were shooting it in 77 or 78 and this the 70s were a remarkable era for movies particularly in the horror genre if this movie started shooting in 78 we're only a few years removed from the exorcist from Jaws, from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and we're right on the heels of Halloween, all of which really reset the bar for, well, Carrie was only a few years earlier as well. Right. So the bar was pretty high for Stephen King adaptations. Now, when the book The Shining came out, it was, if I recall, a huge hit. It was already regarded as an instant classic. I think Peter Straub had it on his 100 Greatest Horror Films of the 20th Century list or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it had a rabid and very loyal following. So when word got out in the 70s that this magnificent horror novel was going to be made into a film by Stanley freaking Kubrick. Stanley freaking Kubrick. Stanley freaking Kubrick, who you could argue was probably, in many opinions, the greatest filmmaker of his time. And it was going to star Jack freaking Nicholson on top of that. Mm. You've got a bar set just abnormally high mm-hmm. for what this film was going to be. People were expecting you to go to this film and you would drop dead before the opening credits were over. It was so scary. Then the film came out, and it wasn't what people were expecting. Fans of the book were disappointed because it wasn't just like the book. Right. Fans expecting it to be like The Exorcist or Halloween were not getting that out of it. And interestingly enough, I think even Kubrick loyalists, you know, the, the people who actually stayed awake all the way through Barry Lyndon, for example, it, to them it was almost too conventional of a film for him to be making, and they were disappointed with it a little bit. So it really had an awfully high bar to to get over 
from the beginning to where it was almost going to be unfairly criticized no matter what it did, unless it was literally the scariest film ever made. And it's not supposed to be the scariest film ever made. Kubrick's vision was for it to be the film we got, and it is a magnificent film. But it certainly wasn't the movie that people were expecting, be them fans of the book, or be them fans of Kubrick, or be them fans of the 70s horror films. I'll put it in this context, as far as how the film was probably looked at at the time, and I was too young to directly remember. If you're a younger listener, the film Jaws and The Exorcist and whatnot were were like The Conjuring films. Right. I mean, much better, obviously. The Shining the contemporary was lo- horror of its day, or the correct, contemporary correct. Of its day, right? The Shining was what we'd consider hereditary, or the Babadook to be. Right. You know, amazing films, but definitely not the conventional genre faves. I definitely appreciate the film a lot more, in addition to the novel, like I mentioned earlier, a lot more now that I'm older than I did when I was just a teenager when it came out. So I can see how that happens. I think there is so much that is awesome about this film starting at the very first frames with the score uh, just yeah. the the, the yeah. incredible score that that comes through it the sound design on it as they're in the hotel the, in, in all the shots you can hear the wind blowing right in the right, isolation right, right. as much as in the novel the the hotel feels like a character uh the long tracking shots kubrick's use of color and of course then you get into the acting right this i think this role with jack nicholson playing uh jack torrance right this it it almost i don't want to say it made jack nicholson a caricature but it definitely turned him into the crazy jack that i think will will follow him around through his career um you know the 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 maniacal eyes the you know i was looking at that and i was seeing later how he played the joker as i was watching some of those those scenes in there well i the thing about that i've always i've always said that any other actor other than Nicholson's career, probably would have been destroyed by that movie. I mean, if you look at what happened to Anthony Perkins after Psycho, mm. yeah, good luck getting those romantic leads after you've been <laughs> That's Norman true, Bates. Right. Or Steve Rails back after playing Charles Manson and Helter mm. Skelter so effectively. But, I mean, well, number one, Nicholson was already a very, very well-established actor by that point. And we've seen him go a certain type of nutso in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's true. So it wasn't that's totally true. alien territory for him. Very, that's a good um, point. But I think, I think almost any other actor, even a major actor, would have had trouble overcoming that role and getting other roles after that. And But, I mean, after that, he's in terms of endearment. He's in Batman. He's in... Um, I'm thinking of a rom-com he did that was so as good as it gets, I think right. it was. Uh, only an actor of his stature and talent would have really been able to to move past that role and do other things. And the only other actor you can say who did that was probably Anthony Hopkins after Silence of the Lambs. Right, right. And, and it's not just Jack Nicholson. I think um, the young kid who plays Danny is fantastic through it. I think Shelley Duvall playing w- Wendy... Her, the, the early parts of it, she seems very idealistic and isn't this going to be great, but the terror she is able to convey as things start going wrong towards the end of it is, is so raw and so authentic. It, it's part of what makes that film, um, I think I think is why it is standing the test of time, but I, to your point, I think it's also why it's so polarizing. I'm among those who's never been a fan of her performance in that. I mean, she doesn't grossly affect negatively affect the film i think she's i mean her character is essentially a milk toast through much of it 
and I think she tends to go, as much as you want to say Nicholson had the role to go over the top in, I think there's some times where she goes a little over the top on her own, but it still works. Mm-hmm. And there's still a real sense of horror towards the end, like you said. And, you know, the other the other actor in there doesn't get enough credit is the great Scatman Crothers, right. who was just a magnificent character actor who got that role and ran with it. And I think he made the Halloran character truly memorable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Stephen E., you opened the episode talking about Room 237, Room 217. What is going on in Room 237? Well, in the movie, we're never really completely sure, other than we're told, don't go into Room 237. Uh, in the novel, of course, we're, we're, we get a little more background in terms of the history of what happened in that room and who was in there and, and whatnot. But basically, Room 237 is... Uh, the boiler room is basically the heart of the beast, then room two, 237 seems like it's, I don't know, pick a major organ of your choice, I guess. But it, it, it clearly the spleen, is a, the it's liver. the spleen. Okay. 237 is the spleen of the overlook, I <laughs> okay. guess it is. But this becomes, as is any great classic horror tale, this is room two, 237 or 217, becomes kind of the don't go in there. It's, it's definitely the room where there's this magnificent and very powerful and obviously... Um, realized horror that's happening where where i think through a lot of the rest of the hotel through most of the story or movie the evil the whatever it is in the house kind of hides in the shadows a little bit comes out only in you know once in a while in front yeah, of danny in the, or whatever in, in the novel it manifests i mean if if the if 237 is a spleen i would say that the hedge mage hedge maze is the face but yeah that 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 isn't represented at all in the film Correct, and we can get into that later. There, right. were, there are good reasons for that. But yeah, it seems like the, the room two, 237 seems like an like the specific concentration of this realized evil in yeah. the hotel. And um, where, it, 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 you know, it's just this, this particularly strong beacon within this, within this place. So both in the novel and in the movie, Halloran, the Halloran character, talks to Danny about how some bad things have happened over the overlook mm-hmm. and the overlook can will will keep images it's almost like memories stains of these incidents in the book 230 it's 217 in, 217, the, book. in, yeah. in the book a socialite commits suicide after being left by her young lover correct that isn't talked about at all in the movie no but yeah, it is. It is. There's really in the in the movie. It's what in, what's interesting about the movie now that I've re- rewatched it for this episode, is there's not too many actual haunting things. There's not like there's not like if you think about a haunted house movie today, there's shaking windows or right, you know, pig eyes at the window. There's not a lot going on in terms of things that are actually haunting the characters. Danny, you know, a ball rolls at Danny. Uh, Jack's getting all those visions, but that's not necessarily physical manifestations of these things. Room 237 is about the only physical manifestation because Danny has marks on his neck, which, you know, you could argue, did he put those marks there himself? Like we talked about earlier. But it, it is one of the few, up until like the very end of the film, it's one of the few parts where something has moved in the hotel. You've actually seen something happening in the hotel that's affecting these characters. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but not that I'm ever wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. But in the movie, the individual manifestations, if you will, 
are never witnessed by more than one person at a time. Danny's the only one who sees the twins. Danny's the only one who visualizes the blood from the elevator. Wendy's the only one who sees the skeleton, the, the cobweb skeletons in, in the one room. Jack's the only one who sees Lloyd. There's um, the, only, uh, the only one you can argue that two of the characters probably saw, although at different times, were, the, were Jack and Danny and the woman in room 237. You never see, most horror films uh, or haunted house films, the end everybody's seeing the spooky things floating around and the chairs flying through the air. That's a good point. I believe, I believe you're correct because the only instance I can think of is, I believe Wendy actually sees the blood elevator, but not at the same time as Danny seeing it at the end. I think that is one of the images. She sees like three or four flashes of images at the end, you know, disturbing images that she's being chased out of the house. Right, but there's never... Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the the movie that's one of those great challenge points for people like, you know, talking about what really happened in the movie was a lot of the scenes you almost never see two characters in a frame at the same time anyway. That's I true. mean, you see Wendy with Danny a lot, but you also see Danny by himself. You see Wendy by herself. You see Jack yeah. by herself. You rarely see the characters together at any given time, and it's usually when they're huddled in the bedroom or in the early scenes. So whenever there's a wit, and this is one of the things that's great about the movie, is that the horror seems to be very personalized and individual. No, it's like three blind men and an elephant. Hmm. If you got those three, if all three characters had survived, spoiler alert, one of them doesn't, but if all three characters had survived, none of them would be able to tell the same story. That's absolutely correct. So for all of those issues and more, I'm in the camp where I think The Shining, the film, is a masterpiece. I think the pacing... I think the isolation you feel watching it, uh, the performances, all make this thing stand head and shoulders above most horror films. I agree. Let's move on to part three of the show. This is the part where we start talking about what were some of the decisions that Stanley Kubrick made that fundamentally changed either the characters or the narrative. So, Stephen E., give me your top one or two, and then I'll give you my thoughts. So this would, of course, be the 800-pound gorilla part of talking about The Shining. We're obligated right. by law to talk about these. The, I mean, there are a lot of differences. Probably the most significant one is in the handling of Jack. He's not as a very sympathetic character, even from the beginning of the movie. Correct. In fact, you almost have to, have to watch it a couple times to finally realize he may, in fact, be nuts at the, at the beginning of the movie. He's just I thought on, so. he's, Yeah, he's basically unhinged from the beginning. He's just waiting to be pushed over the edge so he ends up being a much more malevolent character in the film in kubrick's interpretation of it and people had a lot of trouble with that but that's that's how he interpreted it the other major difference is is obviously the ending Mm -hmm. where again in the fight in the book the big finale is he pretty much sacrifices himself to blow himself up along with the overlook taking all the evil down into the into the snow with him uh in the movie he basically he runs out of steam and freezes his death while still en route to killing his family. He never has a moment of redemption in the movie. It's just basic about he's fully descended into evil and he's not coming back. The hotel has overcome him to the point where at the, ver- the final shot in the movie is, of course, uh, indicating he has truly been absorbed into the history, the, the dark history of the hotel. Yeah. In fact, we didn't talk about the Grady character at all, but that's a good point. Uh, yeah, 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 Grady. Yeah mentioning how you've always been the caretaker yeah so i would agree so the jack character if i were to characterize this jack 
novel version of Jack, alcoholic, depressed, you know, concerns about his future. And he, he, he does love his family, but he's overtaken by the, by the influence of the Overlook movie version of Jack, just a bit unhinged, going stir crazy. And really it's almost like his manic nature of being frustrated with his wife that she, she can't let him uh, forget the time that he abused his son, which takes him over the takes him back into the alcoholism path and you know then he just goes off and starts killing or starts attacking with with the axe so he's not sympathetic his family's wary of him i mean all through the book danny's very much in love with his father in fact the love of his father is is a central theme in the novel but in Mm -hmm. in the movie that's not explored at all the influence of the overlook what the overlook as a character is a very different character in the movie it's it's isolated it's cold but it's not as personal like you say it you know in, in the novel it's getting into all of their skin it's it's what how what it's showing to danny in terms of the visions and what um you know you get the whole red rum scene right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um what it's showing to jack and how his obsession with the the owners of the hotel and what they were up to the the it is a it is a character it is a central character and i think it's manifested by the owner of the hotel whose character named delbert no not delbert grady it's the uh the other owner who i will probably look up offline horace derwent oh yes yes yeah so horace although i do think actually even in the book i think this is something that's not well explained is is horace seems to be uh, there, there seems to be some sort of like story going on, almost like a Illuminati pulling the strings gangster going mm-hmm. on, which I don't think really comes out um, strongly. We don't. I don't think we get. I, I guess what I should say is I don't think we get good closure on the Derwent character that I would have liked to have seen anyway. Well, I, you know, in, in in a minute when we will get off on my soapbox about defending the movie versus the book to some degree. But a lot of this is Kubrick's choice. I'm sure. Number one, you only have so much screen time to to achieve all these things. And I think in the case of handling the Overlook in the movie, he really wanted to keep his the cards close to his vest. Right. He didn't want to have a lot of grand backstory. He wanted some things to be implied. Um, he didn't. Uh, and and I think that comes out very well. Uh, I mean, you can make an argument in the movie. The Overlook is basically just a. It seems like it's a big haunted house. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, it is, but um, and and some of the I, what I liked about the movie is that again some of the history of the Overlook is nicely implied, and obviously the horror that's being generated within it is being pulled from the characters themselves, which again I think actually does pull similar to the book. It's always uh, it, the problem with making a movie out of a book is that you don't have a lot of time or ability in the movie to provide a lot of exposition and backstory and necessarily the thorough character development for everybody in the in the movie as you do in a book. And King does a wonderful job in his books of building backstory and exposition. He did a great job in Pet Cemetery. Right. He did a great job in The Shining and Carrie, to name just a few. In the movie, you don't quite have that luxury. Mm-hmm. So you've got to do a lot more with less time and um again i think in that case it also meant changing the story around a little bit to accommodate that right so the the last thing i'm going to say before we start talking about how this how the shining has affected culture is 
Um, you know, King, you, we mentioned earlier how King didn't think that Stanley Kubrick needed knew, knew how to make a horror movie. The, the attack in the bathroom scene is about as effective as anything I've ever seen done. I, w- I would rank that up there with the shower scene in Psycho in terms of how iconic it is as, a, as an image. Do you feel the same? I do, and one of the things, again, that's troubled me a little bit about the the bashing that the movie has taken. Look, if you're a fan of the book and you love the book and you didn't like the movie, that's totally your prerogative. That's it's fine. I I happen to like both, and I don't prefer one over the other because they're different media and handled in exactly this, right. And that's that's fine. Um, but I, you know, a lot of the a lot of people made comments even back at the time the film came out about, oh, Stanley Kubrick just was making a conventional horror film. Has he gotten lazy or something like that? And I think that's they're missing something here because people don't re- maybe forget Kubrick was bored when he got around to making The Shining. He hadn't been drilling out, you know, just grinding out a lot of films. I think Barry Lyndon was the last one he had done like four years earlier. And he was bored. And Kubrick loved to experiment. Some may or may not remember the legend that he actually wanted to make a porn film <laughs> at one point. He'd actually literally talk about, I think I can make the world's greatest porn film. He never, Well, you can make the argument he almost did it with eyes wide shut. But he never really technically followed through on that. But he was bored and wanted to do something different in in a different genre. And um, The Shining, which I think is a wonderful combination of some conventional haunted house elements, but told through an amazing vision with an amazing amount of depth. He did something special with it. He was a brilliant filmmaker. And he took some chances. And he took some heat for it. But I think everything he did played out well with The Shining. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Let's close off this part, and now let's talk about how has The Shining affected pop culture. What do, what do we remember about The Shining? Well, again, I think the, the big thing, and I think this is unfortunate, but in my opinion, the main thing a lot of horror fans and remember is that the eternal debate between book versus movie which I think discredits both of them mm-hmm. to some degree, because, again, I think they both stand alone brilliantly on their own in their own fields of, of excellence. Beyond that, obviously, there's the iconic imagery of, you know, here's Johnny. Here's of, uh, Johnny! Yeah, that, that amazing insane. shot, and, of course, the twins, and, um, yep. you know, the blood coming from the elevator. I think it's, it's influenced a lot of films to follow. Uh, it was influenced by a number of films that came before it as well. Beyond, and, and I think the other thing it really influenced, I'm not sure this is quite along the lines of what you're, where you're going with this, it really changed Stephen King's approach to how he was going to allow his his books to be made into movies from that mm. point on. Because after The Shining, he wanted a lot more control. Pet Cemetery being one of the prime examples of right. that. He, uh, you know, I always, what, that, that, was that the second or third of it? I, I mean, Carrie, I think, was the first, right? But Carrie I, was his first novel, right? Yeah, or the first one to get made into a movie and his first novel. Probably right? both. The Shining yeah. may have been the second one then. Um, but after that, he had his hand in basically every, pretty much had it in everything going forward. He was not going to allow his work to be to be heavily tampered with after that. Yeah. So if, if nothing else, The Shining really changed how Stephen King was going to allow his work to be shown and I think that also you can make an argument pave the way for a lot of other successful authors after that to start, quote-unquote, standing up for their work more when it was being made into films. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I, I definitely know that J.K. Rowling has some of that kind of pull. I don't know how many authors actually have that kind of pull, especially that early into their careers. The um, So, right. So I agree with you. The 
the bathroom attack scene, the here's Johnny, uh, Shelly Duvall with the knife. The other one that I'm thinking of is Red Rum itself. Red Rum! Right, right, right. right. So yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. think anyone hearing that expression uh, immediately, well, they, they probably recognize it. They may not even remember what it's from now right, at yes, this point, yes. but it, it's it's in yeah. the psyche of people. Red Rum! In fact, the... Um, I believe what is it? Ready Player One. I think they recreated the movie Ready Player One, not the novel. But in the movie Ready Player One, they actually recreate the Overlook, and that's one of the. Oh, did they? Yeah. I didn't see, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you talk about hitting pop culture references. You get that's an indicator right there. One last bit I would like to talk about is uh, the Shining did recently get a sequel novel called Doctor Sleep. I think it was about three or four years old now. And that movie is being filmed uh, as we speak. I believe it comes out later this year, 2019. So um, what's interesting about that novel, there's a lot of things interesting about it, and we will no doubt cover it then uh, when it comes out. But Danny's love and sympathy for his father, Jack, is a much more of a sympathetic character in, in that novel. And so we'll talk a little bit about that then. I'm kind of curious about that. I have not read the book. It's sort of curious that obviously the Dr. Sleep is a sequel to the novel, The Shining. So, right. correct. That's exactly so. right. Yeah, they, they totally ignored it. It doesn't take anything from The Shining. Right, the right, film. which I would expect. Well, also, just to be completists on this whole thing, too, and it'll be, I look forward to seeing the movie and reading that with Dr. Sleep. Just to be completists about it so no one writes in and, and tells us we missed something, we do acknowledge there was a miniseries done of The Shining. Oh, yes. Years ago. Rebecca that, uh, de Mornay? Rebecca, Rebecca de Mornay, um, Stephen Weber, I think, who is best known from Wings, mm-hmm. was the star. He played Jack in it. It was a multi-part miniseries, which was regarded as being the much, much closer interpretation of the, bo- of the book. And it was not nearly as good. <laughs> um, which And... I mean, part of it, obviously, they didn't have anybody the talent of Jack Nicholson or, St- or Stanley Kubrick behind it. That was part of it. But also what it really exemplified, despite their best efforts, it really demonstrates why some things that happened in the book would probably would, were terrific in the book, probably weren't going to translate as well into the movie. The hedge animals, I don't think, ever really... I mean, for technical reasons, in, in 1980, if nothing else, they weren't going to put it in the movie. Mm. But certain things that played out in the book that sounded great in the book, again, they just did not look quite as good on a screen they just because now you're you're actually seeing hedge animals and you're seeing some of these things i think the whole thing with tony is a talking as a uh, you know realized character if you will didn't it just didn't quite work as well so again this sort of defends why you make certain changes when you go from one media to the other you, you said it great it's like you want you want the book it's different medium right you want the book to be a great book and that requires different elements and the movie requires a different type of pacing. Exactly. I think what is interesting is this new trend, how we're seeing more single novels stretched out over eight episode miniseries. I'm, right, I'm thinking right. now things like Sharp Objects that we just saw on HBO right, was a great right. example of that. Awesome. Let's go to email. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. We've got followers now. <laughs> we do have followers. This is our second our episode. Which may ep- mean we'll have a third episode. <laughs> That's right. So thanks, everybody, who's written in yes. and uh, given us some feedback. We haven't got any email yet. So, again, our email is blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. So you can send us email if you'd like. But we've gotten a lot of comments on Facebook, 
on uh, MeWe. We're on MeWe now as well on the website itself. So we've actually gotten a couple of requests now that they know the format. So the first request comes from Todd McGowan. He's looking forward to us exploring some Richard Matheson novels. We have, Stephen E. and I have a, a long list of topics we're about that we're going to cover over the upcoming seasons and the omega man i am legend actually is in that list so that's a good one yeah that would be an, i mean well matheson's ripe with material for going back many 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 years um i am legend would be interesting once it's been made into a movie at least formally three times right well informally formally three times last man on earth omega man and then i am legend Community favorite Tom Hall, he's requested on the plus that if we're doing some Stephen King that we should look into Silver Bullet, Cycle of the Werewolf. So our next season, season two, is going to be, well, as of this writing, things are subject <laughs> to change. As of this writing, it's going to be the Universal Monster, so we may get into the werewolf then. And then a new one that came in is from Brett Crockett, and he recommended a book that I had not heard of called Roadside Picnic which was then made into the movie Stalker. Stalker. 1979. And reading reading up on it, reading the bios of both the book and the movie, that that is right up our alley. So that might slip into our sci-fi season when we're going to cover things like Logan's Run and other movies like that. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Um, it sounds like I've never read the book, and, I, and frankly, I haven't even seen the movie, but I'm familiar with the filmmaker who had also done, um, I won't butcher his name here, but he had also done Solaris years earlier so that sounds like that could be a really fascinating one we definitely would be going into that fresh right okay great so we're going to end the show here thank you so much for joining us and uh on next time we're going to be talking about carrie so we'll be talking about the novel they're and they're all going to laugh at us <laughs> they're all going to laugh at you <laughs> laugh at you uh yeah we're going to be talking about carrie we'll have a special guest on and uh Again, thanks so much. Keep reading. Keep watching those movies. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you much, folks. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts, Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening. <laughs>